How has our financial situation impacted our relationship with Jesus? Well, I think it really boils down to the term dying to self. It's a term that as we were growing in our faith um, became a pretty important uh, motto to live by. And uh, it meant that really we had to give up our own selfish desires and that not only applied to you know, what we were holding on to and letting go of, but even in our marriage, in our relationship with our children, in our desire to choose to serve or not, it really boiled down to that dying to self. And so that really changed um, so much more in our relationship um, with the Lord and with others. As my faith has grown, I have seen more need, more um, reasons for me to be generous, to give to organizations, to people who are doing God's work, to my church to help them advance. There's this, I just feel like as I grow stronger to the Lord, He releases my frugalness, as I would like to call it, to be able to just help more people and help more um, in different organizations as well. We support a lot of missionaries and it's just a joy knowing that I am um, helping outside of my faith. And I think my faith has helped me to see that it's important to do that. Not only trusting him more in our journey to get back on track, but to help out more as much as we can, the church through uh, Love Our City event and trying to get back on track so we can give more, you know, be smarter with our money, more, better steward with our money. I think that knowing and loving Jesus, um, the, the more you get to know Jesus, the closer you go to, grow to Christ. Um, you want to give back in whatever way possible. And the closer I've gotten to Christ, the more I've wanted to give of myself to Him and surrender things that um, I hadn't been willing to surrender before. And offering um, was one of those ways. Good morning, my name is Ryan. I'm on the team here at Crossroads, and I'm grateful to be with you here this morning. I'm grateful to hear from my friends on the screen, just their, just their raw, just their description of what generosity and stewardship looks like to them. I've been grateful for their time last week and this week as well. Uh, today, we're in the second week of a four-part series entitled Generosity According to Jesus. And throughout this series, we're looking at the life of Jesus and his disciples to see who they encountered and how Jesus spoke about money and financial matters. Uh, last week, we, we became clear that we know that money isn't the thing that Jesus talked about the most. He talked about his kingdom the most and what that kingdom would look like and how that kingdom would come. And if you were here last week, then you heard from Phil teach from Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents, talking about the principled nature of generosity, the principled nature of generosity. And it became clear as we were discussing that, looking at that last week, that generosity doesn't come naturally to most of us humans. And that there's three things to keep in mind. Number one is this, God is the owner of everything. God is the owner of everything. Number two is that everything that we have is from him and we're to steward all of that well. And number three, we're ultimately hold, held accountable for what we do with everything that he has given us. Well, I think that's a great foundation for the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you have a Bible, please open it and turn with me to Mark chapter 12, which is going to provide the context for our discussion this morning as we look at 
progressing from being principled with our money to being wholehearted with all of the resources that God has given us. We're gonna look at verses 41 through 44. So once you find it, go ahead, mark it. We'll get there in just a few moments. Now, before we get too far along with this, I just wanna make sure that we all understand what we have come to do when we gather and we open God's word. I mean, when we open God's word, we are expecting to hear from him. God has spoken and God continues to speak through his word, and it's our love for him that ultimately has brought us to this moment where we wanna, like the song said, sit at his feet and enjoy his presence and hear what he has to say. We didn't gather this morning to hear what Ryan has to say about generosity. We came here to, what, to see what God and Jesus had to say about generosity, so to that end, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we have come here to hear from you. Help our hearts be soft, our minds open to what you have to say. And we love you, and it's that love, that desire to want to just connect and be close with you that's brought us here. So, Father, we ask, um, as we open your word, that you make it clear what you're inviting us to. And it's in Jesus' name, then, we pray. Amen. When you think about generosity, what image comes to your mind? Is it a certain philanthropic group? Is it a person? Is it someone with a foundation? Is it someone like, it's like Bill Gates? Okay, there are a couple stereotypes that come to my mind. One would be the retired grandmother who gets to watch the grandkids and bake cookies and just be really, really intentional in the lives around her. That's one example. Another example would be is when you walk through the, our higher institutions of learning. You're walking through campus. I mean, you see the business school and the art school, but there typically is a name attached to that school of someone that has been, quote unquote, generous. Okay, um, I know as I was in Indy this past weekend, I was driving back through on 69, go back through or close to Bloomington, and it's not just the assembly hall, it's the Simon Scott assembly hall. I had to look it up. What does it take to get your name on that building? $40 million, okay, from people that we stereotypically think is generous. But when I open up my Bible, I look at the life of Jesus. I don't see any buildings with his name on it. I don't see any foundations. I see a cross, I see a cross. We can't take for granted what Jesus carried on his back 2,000 years ago. That was ultimately our cross. That's the reason why we have it in this room, is to make it clear that generosity finds its definition in the person of Jesus. That is the portrait of the desired destination when it comes to generosity. And ultimately, generosity is God's idea. So it's not a money issue. It's not a behavior issue or even a stewardship issue. It's ultimately a lordship issue. Who is your king? Who is your king? Jesus doesn't put name on buildings, but you know what? He does put names on human hearts. Whose name is on your heart? Whose inscription is on you? See, if I've said yes to Jesus, then everything is on the table. Either I'm following him as my Lord and Savior, or I'm not. So maybe the question would be, Ryan, why wouldn't you follow him? Well, if I'm being honest, it may be because I don't want to go where he's leading me. Well, then that begs the question, where would he take me that I don't want to go. Well, it's probably somewhere that is going to be less comfortable, somewhere that's going to be harder, a place that's less familiar, it's unknown, a place where I'm probably going to have to relinquish the things I'm holding in my hands. Ultimately, I may not trust where Jesus is leading me because I don't want to go there or I don't want to do what he's inviting me to. Now, as the father of three kids and one on the way, um, there are many times where my kids want to go somewhere or do something that I don't want them to go or someplace or something I don't want them to do, okay? And I have to calibrate or recalibrate their, uh, I don't know, their uh, efforts so that they properly align with what their mom and I want them to do. 
okay? And so when you think about how they respond, typically it's pretty good, but there are times when they decided they're gonna go their own way, and that is captured in the word meltdown, okay? Meltdown, if you're a parent, then you know what I'm talking about. If you've been in the grocery store, oftentimes you can hear the meltdown three aisles over, okay? And you're just waiting to see what's going on, okay? Uh, for whatever reason, three, four, five-year-olds can melt down for absolutely the silliest of things. Okay, here are a couple examples. The dog is walking him. He's a little upset about that. The dog is walking him. Yeah, so maybe we aren't quite to those kids' levels, but even with our adult human hearts, maybe we too need some calibration or recalibration. And that, that's what brings us to our text this morning, Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Before we dive in, remember, Mark is most likely lit, written by the guy by the name of John Mark. Um, it's the shortest gospel account, account of Jesus' life that we have, and it was probably one of the earliest that we have. Uh, Mark was not a disciple of Jesus, but he did hang around with Peter and Paul, traveled with them, and received firsthand accounts from those guys. And as Mark put together this account of Jesus's life, he often focuses on the small events that other people would have missed or not noticed, rather than maybe the words of Jesus. And so in this account that we're looking at this morning, we see Jesus taking notice of something that nobody else sees, and he's bringing his disciples close, and he wants to make it clear to them. So this morning, as we read this passage, I wanna to try to read it in a way that reflects that same heart. Rather than reading a familiar passage in the same way we always do, I'm gonna do it a little differently, okay? Here's what I'm gonna ask us to do. Would you mind standing as I read from God's word? Starting in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting the money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came, put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow, this woman has put in more into the treasury than all of the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. All right, thanks for standing. You may be seated. This text may be familiar to many of us, but let's try to make it as though we were there. How would we be experiencing it if we were there that day? Because this encounter takes place in the temple complex. This is a big, large, expansive building, lots of different courtyards and rooms. And this specific account is taking place in the court of women, one of the places in the temple that women were allowed to go. And in that court were 13 trumpet-shaped collection boxes. So Jesus shows up with his disciples. They're all sitting there taking in the scene, seeing people come and go with their offerings, what they have to offer. And then in come the scribes, the religious leaders, the pompous, the self-righteous. They're coming in with all of this hoopla, wearing their long robes. And they have come too to drop in their own funds. Uh, remember that these giving collection boxes, they were metal and there was no paper money at the time. And so when you dropped in metal coins, into a metal bin, it would sound something like this. It's loud, isn't it? It would get your attention, and everyone's attention is on these religious leaders as they drop in all of their money, everyone except Jesus, because Jesus notices someone else, a widow that goes to another collection box. No one notices this because the sound of her two copper coins doesn't really make a sound. 
When she drops in those coins that day, they were the smallest bronze coin in circulation at that time. It was worth 1 64th of a day's wage, something called a denarius. So if we were doing that today, if somebody's making, say, $17 an hour, working eight hours a day, that's roughly $136 before, before taxes. But then let's divide that by 64. You get $2.12. $2.12. That would be the modern-day equivalent of what she was giving. But even back then, it was even less. It was more likely just pennies based on what she was able to offer. Yet, you see what the text said, not only was that all she had, that was all she gave. She gave it all. Many of us sitting here have more than $2.12 to our name, but are we willing to give what we have as wholeheartedly as this woman? See, Jesus, what he was doing is he was attempting to bring his disciples close because he wanted to recalibrate their hearts and minds to look at this woman, to see this portrait of the desired destination when it comes to generosity. I think he's inviting us to do the same thing this morning, to recalibrate our hearts and minds around this understanding of generosity with all that God has given us. And Jesus did it in many different ways. I'm just going to bring to our attention three of those ways that Jesus is recalibrating our hearts and minds. I'm going to summarize it in three statements. The first is this. We think that giving is optional or maybe conditional based on our circumstances. Jesus shows us that it isn't. He shows us that it isn't. Remember who's giving these two copper coins. It's a woman. So she's already way down the social ladder in this time and place. The text says she's a widow. She is nearly at the bottom. And most likely, she wasn't able to provide for herself. The coins that she was giving that day were most likely coins given in a welfare, as though they were alms from the treasury itself. When you look at her life, no, no matter your circumstances, no matter your socioeconomic status, no matter if you're male or female, no matter where your funds are coming from, from this woman's example, we see that Jesus is inviting us to respond with what we have. It may also, too, seem obvious, but Jesus makes it clear that every penny that's given counts. Every minute counts. Even from the, the small pennies and, and quarters that we give to our kids in the, in the kids' ministry area, all the way to some of what we would give in the, in the, in the adult church, okay, all that counts and is valuable. All of those are appropriate responses to the invitation of Jesus. And this isn't necessarily a direct outworking of the text, but I do think the context supports this, that financial giving and giving of our time and effort and resources and opportunities, they ultimately find their origin and their primary expression in the church. Primary expression in the church. Remember, the woman was giving to the temple. She was giving all she had to her God. And God makes it clear in his word that he sees his bride, the church, us, as the primary way that the kingdom comes. And so our giving, our finances, our time, our opportunities, the, the giftedness that God has given us should find our, the primary outlet and first outlet in the church. What would it look like if we set the example of the way that we serve one another here in this place? Remember the way that Malachi 3 says, as God is speaking, God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. God wants it to bring it to my house. And then he goes on to say, and watch and see the way that I can bless it. Watch the way that I can bless it. It doesn't mean, hear me on this, that nonprofits and other faith-based organizations are important, that they don't have a place. They do, they do. But their central mission flows out of the central mission of the church and not the other way around. Jesus is saying that we should give, all of us are invited to give with everything that God has given us for the primary use of the church. Number two, the second way that Jesus is inviting us to recalibrate our hearts and minds around this concept of generosity is this. We assume that giving shouldn't cost us. Jesus shows us that it should. 
That there shouldn't necessarily be a cost at the expense of something else, but Jesus shows us that it should. What Jesus is trying to do is define generosity as being wholehearted, wholehearted. We probably all think that what we currently give is appropriate based on our circumstances and resources and constraints, but think about things this way. When that woman was showing up that day, Jesus not only noticed her, but he, he was watching her. And the, the context of the, the passage is clear. Jesus knew what she had to offer, both what she gave and what she kept. And the same is true of us. Our loving Father is watching us with what we have been given to give back to him, and he sees what we give and what we keep. William Kelly, a Bible scholar, says it this way, the test of liberality or the test of generosity is not what is given but what is left. It's not about what we give then, it's what we keep for ourselves. When we think about giving that way, we realize that we can't lie to ourselves or, or fake generosity, our calendar, and our pocketbook and our checkbook, they ultimately tell the true story. Though if we look at our own human heart, we know that it's easy to, our, to deceive ourselves. In this area, we realize that we often wanna give because it's convenient and we're not willing to allow our giving to hurt some. And that's ultimately why we have this generosity pulse survey, this self-assessment that's anonymous that allows you to, essentially is a resource for you to be able to say, how am I giving and what's the next step in my giving? Okay, Phil mentioned this resource last week. It, it is anonymous. You can take it on your own time. It takes like five minutes. You can see it on the screen. You can take a, a picture of that and at some point today or later on this week, go through that self-assessment. Allow God to just check your heart a bit in terms of where you are giving across all areas of generosity and ultimately to decide what is that practical next step. Thinking back to this woman, most financial advisors would have told this woman that she was crazy. Jesus doesn't call her crazy. Instead, he commends her. It's as though Jesus wants us to be principled, the theme of last week. He wants us to be principled, but not so much to be principled for principle's sake. He wants us to have some of these rules and guidelines to be able to put that first 10% in, but he ultimately wants that to drive into our entire heart. He wants us to give with our whole heart. Number three, the third way that we place or that we think about generosity and the way that Jesus is recalibrating our hearts and minds is to be summarized in this statement, that we place emphasis or maybe more emphasis on the amount we give. Jesus places emphasis on the condition of the heart. Notice that for the religious leaders and the widow, Jesus assesses the monetary value of their giving differently than everyone else in attendance. I mean, sure, the religious leaders are dumping large piles of cash, or in this case, coins, into the bin. Everyone sees it, everyone hears it, and they're most likely applauding. And yet here we see this woman only give two coins. Nobody notices it, but Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one that celebrates that. Why does he celebrate her response? because her actions ultimately reflect a heart fully given over to her God. And from, I'm sure from the perspective of the disciples, they're thinking, hold on, Jesus, we can see this visible, tangible way that we're meeting the financial needs of, of the body here, and then we didn't even see this woman, you're bringing it to our attention, what, what's going on? I'm sure they're asking the question, is this, is this what giving is supposed to look like? And from Jesus' perspective, he's saying it's it's not so much what it looks like, guys. It's what's going on in the heart. And that, that's a theme that runs throughout all of Scripture. It's not necessarily something that Jesus started in his ministry. We see that flow all throughout the story of Scripture. I mean, think about it in the Old Testament when King Saul, the first Israelite king, ultimately disobeys God. God says, hey, I'm going to remove him, and I'm going to find a new king, a man after my own heart. And so God talks to Samuel, the prophet, and says, Samuel, I want you to go. I want you to go find this, this man, this, this person named Jesse. He's got multiple sons. One of the kings is going to be him. 
And so sure enough, Samuel goes, uh, hangs out, finds out Jesse, and then here out come the, the kids. And sure enough, the firstborn is Eliab, this strapping young man, tall, good-looking, probably looked a whole lot like a younger Phil Heller, okay, if you're trying to get a mental picture, okay? But then, no, 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 God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says, Samuel, Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. I'm not, I'm not choosing him because the Lord does not look at the things people look at. Let me read that again. The Lord does not look at the things that we look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord is looking at our heart. I think from the pers- our perspective on this side of the story, we can see the lesson is that Jesus is trying to teach, but we're still left with the question. How can we, like this widow, give all that we have, all that God is inviting us to in such a faithful manner? I think when you stand back and look at this woman's life, you realize that her faithful action is a result. The fact that her life is built, I mean, built, not haphazardly thrown together, but built on a solid foundation of real faith, living out her faith day in, day out, its closeness with God and demonstrating simple obedience. The kind of simple obedience that Jesus mentions at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, that sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. At the end of that sermon in chapter 7, Jesus is saying, hey, if you're listening, if you're really listening, if you're putting into practice what I'm saying, if you're obeying with what I'm saying, then ultimately what you're doing is you're building a life on the, found, the right foundation, a bedrock. And so it doesn't matter what outside circumstances, it doesn't matter when tragedy hits, your life is not going to fall apart, it's going to stand strong. But Jesus says, if you're gonna be somebody that's gonna not really listen to what I say, it goes in and goes out and you're not gonna put anything into practice and you're ultimately not going to obey me, then whenever, when things on the outside happen, when tragedy strikes, your life is going to fall apart. And we often think that this metaphor is really good for four, five, and six-year-olds, and we forget how applicable it is to us as we seek to build this foundation, a life built on this foundation of faithful following of Jesus, even when things are hard, even when it hurts, even when we have questions. Ultimately, Jesus is is inviting us to a life where wholehearted generosity defines everything, everything that we say and do. I mean, think about it this way, in terms of our collective church. What if our church, we as a group of believers, put our faith into action like this woman did? What if we sacrifice and express love in tangible ways like this woman did? What would be the impact on our community if all of us offered up our time and talents and abilities in a wholehearted way? What would our families, marriages, and relationships look like if generosity oozed out of us like a honeycomb? And what would it look like if our generous lives became the portrait of the desired destination for our kids so they can see it and want it and pursue it and ultimately live it? Now, I understand that building that sort of life is difficult when we have pressure at work and we're working long hours and the kids are running here, there, and everywhere and things are tied and inflation is a real thing. I, I, I get that. Okay, I have three kids and a fourth on the way. Um, we are currently... In, that, in this paradigm of realizing that we have more, we're gonna have more kids than bedrooms? Okay, like, how do we make this work? I, sometimes it's, it's hard to know how to invest in the present while also investing in the future. And if you find yourself asking those kind of questions, if you find yourself in that stage of life, then that's the reason why we created this Q&A panel on Thursday from 6 to 7.30 in the chapel. It's to provide an opportunity for you to be able to ask questions and to rub shoulders with other people so that we're not necessarily doing this together. So, whether you're 40 or younger, or you just have, you're like, I have a question. I need a place to ask it. Well, this is, this is that time and place. 
Okay, if you're like me and you have young kids, we've got free childcare. So just make sure that you sign up. Let us know that you're coming so that they're not running like crazy people, okay, in the back. We, but we wanna create spaces where we can ask questions. We can hear some wisdom and we can do it together. And do it together. So how do we build a generous, wholehearted life like the widow in this encounter? How does our approach to time, money, opportunities, resources, gifting, how does it reflect the centrality of who Jesus is to us? Well, I think the life of the widow gives us that example because she wasn't at home just rubbing her two coins together. No, she was on the move, moving in God's direction and ultimately giving him everything that she had. She was building that foundation one block at a time and that's what we are seeking to do. We want it to be said of us. When people are celebrating our life, we want it to be a life well lived, a faithful life which is made up of faithful days, which are made up of faithful moments, one after the next, after the next. Now, last week, Phil clearly outlined where, God, where God's heart is, where he wants us to be, and that is a cheerful heart that willingly gives the first 10%, that big rock, we place that before him. That's one big piece of the foundation. But how also do we handle our time and resources, the unique way that God has wired us, and how do we put that to good use in the kingdom? Well, that's ultimately what we're trying to do when we created this thing called the 4-1 Project, and this is how we'll conclude this morning. We wanna try to create a framework that allows us to organize our thoughts around giving more than just finances coming out of our checkbook. How do we create a launching point to spur on generosity in all of its facets moving forward? And that's why we've created this thing called the 4-1 Project, and here it is. 4-1 Project are four practical ways that you can do one thing, small thing, but tangible, significant thing for someone else that you wish you could do for everyone. Four small intentional ways that you can do something for one person that you wish you could do for everyone. And there are four expressions that we're gonna use. One is with a prayer, our prayer life. That too is something we need to steward to God. What do we do with one minute? What can we do with one gift or talent or ability? And what can we do with one dollar? The idea is this, that our prayer life, we can be praying for people to express love to them. Who have we been praying for? And if you're thinking to yourself, I I need to be praying for somebody, who can you be praying for starting today and going all throughout this week? Think about our time. Sure, we're busy, but how can we intentionally deposit one minute of encouragement into somebody else's life? Maybe it's our kids, maybe it's our coworkers. How can we do that starting today all throughout this week? Think about the unique way that God has wired us. Some of us are just good at certain things and those gifts are given to us to be able to serve others. What's one way we can use that gifting today and all throughout this week for the kingdom. And our finances, of course. I mean, we strive to put in that first big rock of 10%, but what can $1 do to make a difference in the kingdom today, above and beyond what we currently give? Again, the purpose of the 4-1 Project is to organize our thoughts and hearts around this idea of generosity, to express it in tangible ways. And so we don't revert back to the idea that generosity is just what I give on Sunday. We don't want it to be a legalistic thing either, but we understand that God is inviting us to take the next step in all of these expressions of generosity, and that's ultimately what the, the kind of question that the 4-1 Project is, is seeking to spur on. So this is how the 4-1 Project is going to look today, and it's gonna to start today. It's gonna to extend through this sermon series, but it's also gonna extend all the way into 2023, and this is how it's gonna work. In the atrium, as you came in this morning, you may have seen a banner, a 4-1 banner, along with some other tables. And the idea is that if, if there's somebody that you need to be praying for, if there's a way that you need to intentionally deposit one minute of time, if there's a way that you can use your gifting 
today or this week, all of those different things. We've got pieces of paper out there. We're inviting you to step up to those tables. No, it can be intimidating. And just write those out. Who can I be praying for? Maybe it's who have I been praying for and who do I need to continue to pray for? Who have I encouraged or who do do I need to encourage? I know I've used my gifting in this way in the past. How can I use it again in the future? Those clear boxes are designed to be able to just, you just write on the piece of paper, fold it up, deposit it in there. Those clear boxes are also a place where you can deposit a dollar bill, $5 bill, $10 bill. We're not worried about the denomination, but we're saying God is inviting us to give above and beyond financially. And if God is inviting you to do that, then step up to those boxes and you can deposit those funds in there. Ultimately, what we're gonna do on Vision Sunday on November 20th, that day where we celebrate all that God has done in 2022 and we look ahead to 2023, we're gonna take those dollars and we're gonna be able to show tangibly a need that we're gonna be able to make, an above and beyond need. Sure, here at Crossroads, we meet lots of needs through our ministries and through our Benevolence Fund and Agape, but this is another way to use one additional dollar to be able to meet a need above and beyond what we're currently able to do. Here's the last thing I'll, I'll say about the four one project, right? God has called us to intentional giving. We want to continue to give. In, if you give regularly with uh, tithes or offerings, you can, we still have those giving boxes at the end of the, or the outside of this room. I'm sorry, but God has invited us to give in these practical ways. But He's not just invited those of you sitting out there. He's invited our staff as well. We recognize that as a staff, it's not just our job to talk about these things; it's our job to lead out in these ways. And so if you would have come this morning, you would have noticed that those boxes were not empty. They didn't start empty this morning because we've been talking about this as a staff and inviting our staff to participate and lead out in the ways that we're encouraging, serving, using our giftedness, and using a dollar above and beyond outside of our normal work hours. We want to partner in this as a collective church because we're all in this together. I think I'm gonna, I'll close this way. I don't know about you, but I hate puzzles. Okay? I don't know about you, I hate puzzles. You can ask my wife and my siblings, my parents, they all love puzzles. When we get together at Christmas time, we break out a new puzzle and they, they love it. All the, as we as adults, I don't know where they got it from, but I'm typically running the opposite direction. I still don't understand, and you can talk to me afterwards, I don't understand the business concept of getting a piece of cardboard, printing a picture on top of that piece of cardboard, cutting it up into a bunch of funky looking, a thousand piece thing, putting in the box, sticking a price tag on there, that people would buy that and spent hours and hours and hours putting that together. I, don't, I have not been able to understand why that's the case, but people do it. I've seen them. Okay, so every holiday, my family decides to break out the new puzzle. And oftentimes I would run the other direction until a couple years ago, where I decided that the antagonistic oldest brother likes to kind of like, just kind of dig in there and be a little bit of a bug. That, that part of me came out. And I, when no one was looking, I took two of the pieces. <laughs> and I hid them. And everyone was working diligently on the piece. And then I finally, it's almost done and they can't find the pieces. And I would show up with the piece and say, here, let me finish the puzzle for you, okay? I understand that's an awful, horrible thing to do. And I have asked for forgiveness, okay? I have asked for forgiveness. Well, I did that for a couple years. And after a while, I decided, you know what? I've earned this bad reputation. I'm gonna act like an adult now, okay? And I'm not gonna do that anymore. And so I decided in my heart I wasn't gonna do that. So this next Christmas comes up and sure enough, there's a new puzzle that's broken out and everybody is working on the puzzle except me. I'm over here doing something else. And they work on it for a few days and then they're almost done, but they're missing a couple pieces. Of course, they looked to me because I was the boy who cried wolf, okay? And I said, it wasn't me, guys, it wasn't me. And they thought, no, this is the dirtiest, rottenest trick you've done yet, Ryan. Holidays come and go, pieces don't show up. They thought that I had kept them and refused to allow them to complete the picture. Well, then a few weeks later, in our family group text, 
I get a text from my mom to the whole group, just a picture of the vacuum bag opened up, and there are the pieces. She had inadvertently vacuumed up the pieces while, you know, she likes to keep, keep a clean house while that was going on. I'm telling you what, the smile on my face was from ear to ear, okay, because I had been falsely, falsely accused. Well, this past week, in my Bible reading, I was in the message translation, reading through 2 Samuel, which tells the life of David, and ultimately he becomes king. And in 2 Samuel 22, verse 21, David says this. He says, God made my life complete when I placed all the pieces before him. God made my life complete when I placed all the pieces before him. If you haven't listened to anything I've said yet, listen to this. This is where it all comes together. Here it is. You can't see the picture. You can't see the picture of the kingdom or your own life if your hands are closed and you're holding the pieces. You can't see the picture that God is trying to paint through your life for his kingdom if you are holding on to the pieces. But if you open up your hands and give him all the pieces of your heart, all the pieces of your life, your disappointments, your fears, your failures, your opportunities, your gifts, your finances, you give him all the pieces of who you are with your whole heart, you give them over to him, he's the one that can put them together. Your life becomes complete, and the picture of your life and of my life tells God's story in the most beautiful way possible, just like this woman who was a widow with only two copper coins. Let it be said of us, let it be said of us that we are people that are open-handed to give it all to him so that he can paint the picture of our lives, of this church, and for his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're humbled by the generous expression that we see in the person of Jesus. The fact that he has pursued us, has loved us in ways that now we wanna respond. We know we've been invited to respond. Man, we wanna give it all. We want you to have our whole heart. We know that's difficult. So Father, help us press through difficult conversations. Help us to make that intentional, pragmatic step so our life isn't just principled. Our giving and our generosity isn't just principled, but it is wholehearted. Father, we ask for that grace in Jesus' name, amen.